Good evening. We're so grateful that you're here tonight. Something special about all the love that we have on uh, on a midweek service. It's important that we do that on a regular basis. On Wednesday nights, we try and live out the gospel. On Sundays, we also try it. But I think Wednesday is one of the truest forms of how a church is supposed to act. If you go to the book of Acts, the history of a church... There's Acts 2.42, and there's the essence of what a church needs to do. And here's what I believe, that we should do this in our homes, we should do this in our small groups, we should do this at church every week, and we try and fulfill this on Wednesday, and it's something that Acts 2.42 wants and, and, and blesses. And what, what happens is, is we, we use the Word of God, and when you break bread with the Word of God, God does something, so that's always important. He allows fellowship. It says, breaking bread with the Word of God, having fellowship, which we just had, food that we had. Give a hand for those that did the food tonight. It was great. My buddy Ed leading us through communion, prayer, worship. All those things are something that are important to us as Christians, trying to live out the gospel and uh, that's important to do. It's not always easy, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. A lot of times we pull up short and we quit at the point of where God really wants us to go. On Wednesday nights, we go through a little bit of a different version of, 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 of worship than we normally do. On Sundays, we do what we call a topical expository preaching where we take a topic and we preach through it and use it for part of the celebration and transformation process. On Wednesdays, what we like to do is we like to go verse by verse. And uh, the reason why we do verse by verse, or a lot of people teach expository teaching, is it forces you into texts that you don't always want to talk about. There's a lot of things in the Bible that are tough to deal with. This church, over the years, have gone through many of the books of the Bible, and we've gone through ye uh, one or two books that have taken a year plus to go through. And it's important because it teaches us about things that God wants us to understand. Nothing more important than the Gospels. The Gospels are the four books that, that show who Jesus was. And each Gospel is a snapshot of what Jesus was to that specific writer. Now there's the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those just mean that they're similar. And then there's John, which is set apart for a reason. Matthew was written to the Jewish people. And for those that have been in Bible studies know that it preaches that Jesus was the king, uh, king of the Jews. So Matthew was written so that people would know to, from the Jewish heritage that Jesus was the king of the Jews. It had that tint or had that flavor. Mark was written to the Romans, the busy Romans who are always in a hustle and bustle. And Mark is the shortest gospel, but it starts right into action and is written to the Romans. And it shows Jesus as a servant. And then Luke was written to those uh, cultural, uh, cultural uh, socialites, the Greeks. And Luke, the doctor, writes this in very good detail about who Jesus was. He was the son of man or the son of God. But it showed his man part of God. So those are the synaptics. And then John, which we're now in chapter 4 in the middle of it, shows who Jesus is. And it was written to the Jewish and the Gentile. So that means it was written to everyone so that we can understand who God is. If you look at the beginning, it says who Jesus is. I, a couple of, about a year and a half ago, I was talking to somebody from another religion. They would consider themselves Christian, but they don't really follow our text. They follow a different text. And they were talking about Jesus not being God. 
And I said, well, if you just open up John chapter 1 and read, you see who he was. And the person's eyes wasn't blown away. They were actually really opened up to what God was trying to say. Their mouth kind of dropped because it says that he was there with God and he is God. And so the John gospel text is really important for us to really understand who God is and what he is. And we're going to see some of that today. So today we continue on what I call the bad Samaritan. There's a story in the Bible called the good Samaritan. And then we have this woman, and I'm not saying because she's a woman she's bad, but the way that she's depicted is that it's a bad Samaritan. It's kind of a theological joke. Nobody really liked it, but it was good when I thought about it. So anyways, today we're talking about a woman at the well. Now, Jesus is evangelizing this woman. Jesus is trying to preach to her and tell her about the good news that Jesus is in the world and he's here to save people from their sins, to save them from their lives so that they can have a life and a life to the fullest. That's what Jesus is communicating here. And as we read today, I want you to look through these 15 verses that we're looking at and I want you to see if you can see where the conversion starts to happen. Because there's a couple of things that happens when someone goes from a non-believer to a believer. It's this conversion of Christianity, and it's a salvation point. So here's what I want to do to get started. I have a friend of mine. He's another pastor at Horizon Baptist, great, great preacher, and here's what he says. He says, every Christian in this room and every Christian in this country and in the world should, if they want to be a complete Christian, lead someone through the salvation prayer. Every Christian and he said, you know, this is what a real disciple looks like. It's not only do they invite him to church and that they read the Bible with other people, but they also take someone to the point of they're not believing to believing. And he says, that's a complete, God, uh, that's a complete disciple. And when he was telling me this about three years ago, I'm like, wow, man, your church must be awesome. How many people have done that? He's like, only like four. So it's not like everybody did it, but I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. So here's the question I want to get started for. Some of you might know this very easily. Some of you might not know this. Somebody might at your table need to say this prayer right now. But here's what I want you to do in the first question tonight before we get started. What is the prayer of salvation? Like, what is it? Not What I mean by that is what are the, the, the plans for salvation? So what is the prayer? And then have you ever led someone? Uh, if you're older in here, if you're pre-75, if you're pre-75, no, don't raise your hand. I don't want to point you out. There's also this thing called the spiritual laws, the four spiritual laws in the 60s and 70s that we're using a lot. If you know those as well or part of it, just tell me what the prayer of salvation would be. Tell us the structure of what's the word. So go ahead at your group, talk about it. And if somebody's never said it and do it, then the last part says, have you ever led someone? Lead them in the prayer of salvation. So go ahead and go. Spend some time talking about this, and we'll come back and start the message. Okay, let's bring it back together, and let's kind of go through this a little bit. It's important that we as Christians know some of the answers of God, and if you don't know... We're to ask questions and talk to someone that you trust. I think Ed was talking about that during his communion. But here's the thing. Here's what the enemy wants to do is like, I'm too embarrassed to ask because I don't know what the spiritual, what it looks like to lead someone in prayer. Or I don't know what a couple weeks ago somebody asked what the kingdom of God is. It's okay to not have all the answers. I don't necessarily have the answers as well. I would go to someone that I trust and I would go and, hey, what do you think? And then 
formulate an opinion about what it is. But the point is this. The enemy wants to make it too embarrassing, like you don't know enough about the Bible. And here's the thing. If you don't know how to lead someone into salvation, then have you really opened up your Bible and want to know that? How did you become a Christian? Someone had to lead you at a church service or at a, or a, I, I want to be a tent revival pastor. That's my dream. One day that God will, so pray for that for me. That's what I want. Big tent, great music, and uh, just preaching the gospel and just giving a tent revival. So one day when I grow up, that's what I'm going to do. But here's what it is. There's this thing called the bridge. This is one that we use a lot. This is from a tract online. This is, this is the bridge diagram. Before you know God, you're separated from God from what happened in the garden. So that's you. Anybody relate to that person right now? That's how I feel sometimes. So I'm separated from God, and I'm looking to bridge. So we are separated. The next slide shows us what we try and do. Men and women and children think that we are good. We can do good works. We can do things to help us, but the problem is sin, death, and hell are our solution apart from God. Without Jesus, we are going to go into this valley no matter what because we don't have a bridge to God. God has been separated because of sin. We can't be around God. And so what happens is Jesus is the only bridge to Christ. And then if you look at the next slide, Jesus is then on the cross and he's the one that bridges us over to God. Now here's the thing. That's where most people stop, but then there needs to be a prayer. And the prayer then leads someone to the other side. And that prayer can go in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. And it says this, and I didn't put it up on the screen, but it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it's confessing with your mouth that you are being saved. And if you don't make that prayer, you're just wandering saying Jesus is there. But that next step, if you put to the final slide, there's victory by accepting Jesus. And now you're connected with God on a day-to-day -day basis. And you've now been bridged and connected to the God of the universe. And that's the important thing. On Sunday, every Sunday at this church, we close with a salvation message. And it goes something like this, and I might have put it up there. Forgive me, God, because when there's a moment of, 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 of repentance and, and conviction, there needs to be a level of forgiveness that, God, I can't do this on my own. I'm a sinner. And you're asking for conviction of the Holy Spirit, and then that person says, I need to forgive. So forgive me, Father, for who I am and what I've done. I know that you've died. And that you rose again for my eternal life. Come into my heart. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. And that really does it. But for us at our church, we then ask that the Holy Spirit becomes part of your journey. There's, there's a second part in Acts that says there's this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we want to do it all together as one. And so the final part that we say here is let the Holy Spirit come over you and make it part of your journey. Make it part of your life and guide me the rest of my days as I walk with Jesus Christ. Every Sunday we do that because you never know who's in here and who needs to be saved. And that's what we're going to see at the woman of the well. The woman at the well is probably one of the greatest political writings of all time. But we forget about it. We don't realize the dynamics. And I'm sure Jeremy went through all the social economical things happening at the time. But the woman at the well is one that has really radically transformed us as a, as a, as a society and brought people out of the darkness into the light. So if you're able to stand, I want to just kind of read 
Last week, Jeremy was communicating on my birthday. I happened to not make it. Forgive me for not being here. Thank you. Uh, I was eating barbecue, and so I, didn't, I couldn't get it off my hands in time to get here, so I just uh, I stayed. Anyways, last week, Jeremy was talking. There's this, Jesus comes after a long hike. They come up to this well. It's about noontime, and he comes and sees this woman, and he's sitting at this well. It happens to be Jacob. Well, he's like, give me, give me some, if you don't mind, can you give me some water? And she's kind of appalled, like, hey, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan, and I'm a woman. You shouldn't be asking me. You know better. We don't communicate. You Jews don't like us Samaritans. And that's kind of where we're at. And at the end, he starts talking about the water. So I'm going to just go back and read uh, 13 to 15. And then we're going to pray that God does something here tonight. Amen? Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And then the woman at the wall says, Please, sir, the woman says, give me this water. Then I will never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Today, no matter how thirsty you are, or how full you are with the Spirit of God, I pray that God will do something that it bubbles over from someone in your group or from someone up here or someone in this room into your lap so that you have this living water spilling out all over you. So no matter where you're at, just bow your heads. Let's just ask God to work tonight. Break down the walls, the barriers, the hatred, the anger, the pride and the selfishness. And let's pray. Father in heaven, I praise you for who you are. Lord, I ask for you to work mightily. I ask that you take our pride and our arrogance and that you use this political statement tonight, this beautiful statement of salvation, transformation, and revelation so that we can all understand you and who you are. Speak boldly tonight, Lord, because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. So the women, uh, so this woman is meeting Jesus, and she's like, you're a Jew, and you shouldn't be communicating with me. It goes against your culture. She's pointing out his problems. And Jesus is breaking down that cultural barrier. And then she starts talking about this water. Now, here's the thing. The woman is talking about material water, this, this material thing. This physical water that you drink, and Jesus is talking about something spiritual. He's talking about something completely different, and a lot of times he does that in, 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 the, in, in the writings because he's trying to open us up to something new. So that's what we see here. You know, when we think about God most of the time, we think in the physical, material temple. And God is challenging us to take this journey out of our head and out of this world and come to this place that's completely spiritual and completely true in his word. And the problem is, is we get stuck somewhere in between that journey with things like kids and jobs and flat tires and all the other things that happen and we don't get completely to that spiritual place. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to open up his word, and it becomes one of those. You, you, you remember reading those kids' books, and it pops up, and there's like a village and animals moving? Man, I love those books. 
That's how, the, that's how the Bible should be for us. It should be more than just black and white words. It should be actual stuff that you open up and it becomes alive. And that's what we see here is Jesus is trying to communicate, saying, don't focus, church, don't focus men, women, and children on just the black and white. Focus on the spiritual things and watch God walk us away from the things of this world and into the arms of Christ. Amen? So the gospel, John, has really one main theme, that Jesus is God. He is this 100% man, 100% God, this hypostatic union. He's the God-man. He's this superhuman, super God-man that can only do things that only he could do. And, and that's an important thing, and that's what John is communicating to all of this world. But there's another theme that's kind of maybe the second theme. I think 36 times in the gospel, the word life is in there. So not only is it the God-man is here that he is God from beginning and he will be there at the end. He's also talking about life. In John 10.10 it talks about the thief will come to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came to give life and life to the abundance or life to the fullness. You know what Christians today, maybe in in this room, we live a, a really partial gospel message. We don't live life to the fullest. We live life to... I was going to say something half with an ASS on it, but I don't think I should say it. We live a very partial gospel because we don't live a full life. And what we think a full life is, is a, a huge bank account. We think of life with our kids are perfect. Does anybody have any perfect kids, by the way? Really? I'll drop mine off tonight then and you see what you have. You do? So our kids... You know, we need to live life to the fullest. It doesn't mean perfection. It means that you're going to go through, like my brother was talking about tonight on communion, all these issues, all these trials, all these things that we're going to go through. And in the end, you might lose out and you might get a couple of scars and bruises and cuts from champagne glasses or bottles from a wedding that I don't even drink. But in the end, God will be glorified. Life to the fullest, right? And so that's what we need to look at, and that's what we see is in the Gospel John that he wants to talk about life. Now, Calvin, uh, Campbell Morgan talks about uh, life and what mankind needs for life. And it says, he says, man needs air, water, and what? What? Food? Air, water, and food. I don't know what you guys need, but I need air, water, and food. And then he says, but there's another one that we've seen that really makes life work, and that's light. We need a light to actually make us whole and complete and life to the complete. John, the gospel of John in all of the texts shows that Jesus is all of these. It says Jesus is the breath, the spirit of God in John 3.8. Jesus is the breath. He's the actual air that we breathe. We sang that for our, 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 our offering song this weekend. It says that he is the bread of life, John 6.8. He is the actual sustenance in food. It says... That he is the light of life. John chapter 1 verse 4 and 5. He's the light of the world. And, and today our verse talks about him being this spiritual water. And so he actually gives us this fullness of life with the air and, and the water and the, uh, um, what was the other one? I forgot it already. Food. See, I forgot the food one just like you guys did. And also he gives us light. And that's what he wants us to understand today. 
So this woman is now here, and she's talking about this physical water. Well, how are you going to? You don't even have a rope, or you don't even have a bucket. How are you going to actually get this water? And he starts talking to her in, 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 in spiritual sense. I want this water, so then I'll never have to go back to the well and drink again. That's kind of lazy, isn't it? I was thinking about that today. We got this water jug at our house, and it's a five-gallon jug, and it seems to go empty all the time. I don't know why, where it always goes, but every time we're lifting it up, and I'm like, where's all this water go? Wouldn't it be cool if I never had to go to that again? But that's not really the point of the story. But that's the point of where her mind went, and that's the point of where our mind goes. We go into these temporal places going, yeah, it would be cool if I could just blink my head or twinkle my nose like bewitch and be somewhere. But that's not the real world. That's false. That's the enemy trying to act like we can do something and cut corners. And God wants, if you want to live a life to the fullest, you need to go head on to the things that you're dealing with and watch God work through that moment, through that pain. Through that, through that suffering in there, there's glory, I promise you. I've been through a lot. Here's what Jesus says. He, he then communicates, and you start to see some of the conviction here. He says, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. She says, I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus says, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands, and you aren't married to the man you're living with. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman says, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you're, the Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship, while the Samaritans claim it is Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? Here, Jesus then speaks truth to her. We need to understand what truth is. I was at a place recently where I was listening to somebody, and this person said, my truth is the truth. That's just not true. You want what you want in your head to be true, but that's not true. My truth is just what I think it is, and I'm going to taint it to what I want in my own life, even if I'm the righteous, most uh, holy man, because I'm going to see it through my small mindset. God's truth is set apart. This is true north for me. We make a decision that this is going to be true north, and maybe you only believe 90% or 80% or 70%. The more that you accept it, the more God will open up your heart to the other things, and more will be revealed at that point. Jesus says in, in, in Ephesians, Paul writes, instead, speak the truth of love, growing in every way to be more like Christ. We need to learn to speak and live the truth. In every way growing more like Christ. He says, you're speaking truth, ma'am. And he's, giving, he's getting credibility. And this woman is now uh, uh, making some changes. This woman recognizes who Jesus is. If you read all of, uh, all of this message from 1 to 30, you see that this woman knows who Jesus is. In, in, verse, in verse 9, it says, you're a Jewish man. Why are you coming and asking me for water? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for anything? She recognizes he's breaking the, the laws and he's breaking the rules of his own religion. In chapter 19, she says, you're a prophet. And she's now elevating him, not only just a Jewish man, but a prophet. And that's going to be significant in a little bit. And then in the future verses 25, 26, and 28, she's going to accept him as the Messiah. Now, we're not going to see the spiritual prayer read but we see salvation occur here. You know, as I was looking up some, some readings that I usually look at when I do a message, it said that not everything that Jesus did was written in the Bible. Do you realize that? 
It said in one of the Gospels, it says, if everything was written, the book would be way too big. And we wouldn't be able to, you can barely open up this thing. Could you imagine of it being six times of war and peace? Right? It's too big. So the purpose is not a complete full gospel. The purpose is to believe in some of the things that are unseen so that you have faith and believe that's really what happened. Here we see evidence of salvation. So this woman knows who Jesus is. She doesn't really know him as the Messiah yet, but she sees him as a Jewish man. She now sees him as a prophet, and in the future she's going to see him as something else. Do you know the only way people come to know Jesus is through conviction? You know, on our Sunday service and our Wednesday service many years ago on a napkin, we wrote down what the church was going to be like. It was going to be encouraging. There was going to be some challenging application, and there was going to be conviction. You know what? And when we presented that to some people, somebody's like, yeah, those first two are great, but why conviction? Without conviction, we don't have salvation. Without conviction, we don't have transformation. Without conviction, we're stuck in a rut. And we never move beyond. If you've ever been in a rut before and you can't get out, it's hard and you're locked and it's taking you to places you don't want to go. Without conviction, we're stuck. And without conviction, we don't have this great uh, salvation that occurs through Jesus Christ. Jesus tells her the truth. Go get your husband. Oh, I don't have a husband. Yeah, you're right. You've had five of them and you still can't hold on to that. Now you got another one. You're not a husband now. And he's not calling her name. He's just speaking the truth. He's sharing it with her. And he's not saying, oh, you're. Yeah, I'm not even going to say those words. But that he's saying something about her. He's saying, and you don't have a husband now. And what happens, the, the reason that this is in here, because the humanity of this woman and the material things of this woman come over at the point of conviction. She is now being convicted. She realizes this man just spoke a word into her life. And he said things that nobody pretty much knows. They might have known that she's been married a couple times, but the truth is this man came out of nowhere and he knows everything about her. But here's the problem. She diverts the conversation from, hey, you're a prophet, to, wow, why do we worship on this mountain and you worship over there? And she makes a divert. And so basically, the seed of salvation at this moment falls into shallow ground. It doesn't really settle right that, at that moment. Do you know a lot of times as Christians, all we're to do is sometimes water, sometimes plow, sometimes throw seeds out. Our job is not always to harvest. I love to harvest. It's fun. But it's not always what we get to do. And this moment, she kind of rejects it. Even though she knows something spiritual happened, this kind of falls on shallow ground. And the reason why we point this out in this text is because the conviction and conviction in our own life, when we have sin and struggles and when we're apart from God, that conviction then uh, fertilizes and tills up our ground so that the seed of faith can grow inside of us so that we can be converted and as Christians we have conviction to get us out of that rut and into this new life that Christ has for us she asks about worship she goes yeah how come Jews go to Jerusalem and how come we go to this Mount Gerizim what's the deal here and she basically diverts she can, can diverts the conversation and we do the same have you ever been in a place where you're talking to someone and all of a sudden the truth about your problems comes to realization and the first thing you want to do is get, get out of that conversation? 
Like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Well, wow, we've been here three minutes. Time flies. I got to go. Right? That's what we struggle with. And here we see that. Let's continue to read. Jesus replied, believe me, dear women, the time is coming when you no longer, it will no longer matter whether you worship on the, the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. The Samaritans, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while the Jews know all about him. For salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming and is indeed here now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship with him in that way. For God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The difference between the two religions are this. And I'll go through really quick because I want to get to this last question and spend some time. The difference between the Samaritans and, and the Jewish people. The Samaritans only believed in the five books, the Torah. And that's all they had. They rejected all the history. They rejected all the prophecy. They don't believe in any of that. So they only have that. And so what Jesus is saying is like you only have a portion of the, the, the writings. You don't even know that there, there's more to come. And there's more about what God is writing. And so he says you don't really know. And he's making it clear here that the religions aren't the same. If you've ever seen this sticker coexist, we realize it doesn't. it's not really apples to apples. This doesn't really work. And I'm not bashing this sticker. I'm not bashing people that believe in this. It doesn't really work. Do you realize most every one of those religions, half of those religions don't even believe in an afterlife? So they're not really considered a religion. There would just be a way of life. And there's not really what we would call religious conversion. And out of those, you don't see, um, there's only three of them that believe in, 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 a, in an afterlife. And two of those that believe in afterlife, the aggressor is man and God is the beneficiary. And Christianity, God is the one who's seeking or aggressive and man is the beneficiary. So religion isn't necessarily uh, the way Christianity should be deemed even though it's thrown into it. Because we have a, a God that's going after us and seeking us and the beneficiary is us. And that's what Jesus is trying to make clear. That the religious... You don't really know the God that you're communicating because you don't know the complete text. And this coexist is kind of one of those things that everybody's like, can't we all just get along? And it's fine that we can. Christians are fine with these other religions, but they really don't meet the test of what really religion means when you really look at it at a very deeper level. But here's the question I want to get to, and I want to make sure we get to this. How are we to worship? How do we worship God? And I want you just to spend a second just going around the table. But then I want you to answer the question. The Bible just said that we are to worship spirit and truth. So explain to me what that means. Go ahead and go. We got about four minutes on this. And then for me to close, I need a couple more minutes. So how do we worship? And the Bible says spirit and truth. So kind of explain that really quick. Okay, sorry, I rambled too long to not give you enough time on that question. That's a really important question. But how do we worship? Really, how do we worship God? The simple answer is that we go to church on Sunday, and we show up about 15 minutes late, and we catch one and a half songs. Right? Or, even better, you come to church early and you hear some extra worship and you pray. But the truth is, when you're up here worshiping, you're up here and what you're doing is you're actually declaring 
who God is. If you were singing that song, Majesty, Lord, Majesty, there's love has no bounds. You're declaring, how do we worship in truth is you're declaring who God is or you're declaring what you need from him or there's some level where you're in this place going, Lord, I need more and that is a moment of worship. Has nothing to do if it's lyrical or musical at all. The declaration is a place of worship. Another way is we find in spirit I'm up here declaring and receiving and asking and most of us connect in worship. We do. Some people can't stand worship and they're like, why are you singing these songs? I like different music. Can we get something from Jimmy Buffett or something? No, because we don't worship Buffett. I like Jimmy Buffett. He's got some cool tunes, but... But we also worship in the truth. And so when I read the Bible, I read it in the form of, M, are you doing this, Jeff Rodriguez? Are you actively living in spirit and truth? Are you actively worshiping God? Are you forgiving if that comes up? If you've heard this sermon before and, and you're in church today and you've heard this a couple of times, the question that I would have as a Christian as I'm listening to it is going, I know the story, I've heard it before. Why is God putting it in my lap today? Why is it alive in my life right now? And what am I going to do with it? It just didn't come out of nowhere that you're here today and hearing the message. Even if you've heard it again, you're supposed to go, what am I going to do with it? And maybe it's because my life is stuck in a rut that I'm not worshiping in spirit and truth. I'm to, to declare, I'm to read, I'm to serve, I'm to be obedient. You know, how, you know how beautiful obedience is in worship? You know, God says... Come up and kneel before the altar. God says, go give that person love or a, a, a handkerchief because they're crying or something. That's a worship too. That you're obeying and you're giving in spirit and truth what God is asking you. Obedience is a great form of worship. It's something that really shows that who you are and what you are because you're willing to be obedient. And the truth is, I don't like to be obedient. But in Christ, I've really found the joy in it and I use it as a form of worship. Here we see worshiping in spirit and truth. The spirit of God is, is, is something that is, is, is powerful, but a lot of times we reject it and we don't want to get lost in it, and so we kind of shut it down. Okay, let's turn the heat way down because the bubbling is going to make me lose it, and that's what we're talking about here. Here's what it says. Jesus is communicating what spirit and truth. It's not a place or it's not a tradition. Worship is not a place. You can't come to church and think that that's what worship is. You can come to church and worship, but it's not really the worship. It's not a place or a tradition. That's what he's trying to communicate here. He's saying Jesus came and died on the cross, and he is the offering that God gave us, and there's no longer a need for sacrifices or actions on our behalf to worship. The only thing that we really need to do is open up our heart and say, Lord, I'm here to worship. Speak and do whatever you want to do in my life. And, and then I will declare, and I will be obedient, and then I will take the truths that you've spoke over me, and I will use them today and this week and throughout my life so that they can become part of me, so that I can live life to the fullest and live in the completeness of God. This is a heart matter, worship is. There's no external actions. It's directed by truth, and it's not a ceremony. Church today, in the last 30 or 40 years, has become tradition and ceremony. Christians have become more like Pharisees, and we've made church more like ceremonies and worship the same way. Three songs up front, and then the knucklehead gives announcements, and then another knucklehead gives a message, and then one song, and come back next week. Hopefully you're filled with everything. 
And so we struggle with that. And that's what God is saying is I want you to open up and receive the spirit and truth and then use it on a daily basis. The woman said, I know that you are the Messiah. I, no, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. He says the I am that denotes that he is God. This woman has a revelation from God. And because of that, salvation occurs. And then her life will start to be transformed. Here's the thing. He tells her that she is a Samaritan and she doesn't know much about God. But she does know this about God. That there is a Messiah and he is coming. And in that Messiah, he will explain all the truths of the world. So this woman knows just enough and I would say most of you know just enough, if not more than enough, to help another person across that line of salvation and into that, that place of glory for God. Don't underestimate yourself. Utilize your gifts. Listen to the Spirit. Go to the truth and let God reveal the blessings. Then the disciples came back to them and they were shocked. They basically had their nose up. What is he talking to the woman? But none of them had the nerve to ask what do you want with her? Why are you talking to the, her, her? And then the woman left her jo a water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see the man who told me everything I did. Could he, be could he possibly be the Messiah? So people came streaming from the village to see him. In this moment, his own disciples are walking up and they're rejecting this woman. They're rejecting this race and this culture. They're breaking, they're like, this rabbi, first of all, he would be considered a rabbi. This rabbi is breaking all Jewish traditions, and he's talking to not only a Samaritan and sitting in community with him, but then he's talking about a Samaritan woman. And then beyond that, a divorcee, oh my goodness. Christians have made divorce the, the one unforgivable sin. That's not what the Bible says, but Christians have made it. And I'm not commending, I'm not saying get divorced today. I'm saying we've made it that. And it's a terrible thing. And you know why Jesus doesn't like divorce? Because it hurts the family. It's so destructive. And he saw it through his Jewish people. He saw it because it hurts kids, it hurts women, it hurts the man, it hurts everybody. And he says, I hate it because it's destructive. That's why he hates it. Here's the last part, and this is my favorite part, and I'll close here. I'll do it quickly. The lady's so excited about what Jesus did, she now leaves, she leaves over here the material water jug. It's gone. She's running away from it because she no longer cares because she's received the spiritual water of Jesus Christ. She's walking away from the thing that she thought that was most important, how to get the water out of the well, and now she's into this place going, I'm no longer needing that because now I have this wellspring of Christ dwelling inside of me. That's an important part for us to understand. Sometimes we have to walk away from that stuff. Doesn't mean that we won't come back and get it or God won't put it back into our life. But here, she goes in and walks away and she also starts telling people. You know the, when the Christian is the most likely to evangelize another Christian? Do you guys know this? Anybody, raise your hand. The first three years of your salvation. As you get older... Close your ears if you've been a Christian more than five years. You become fuddy-duddies. Anybody know what that is? Old, stuffy, oh, they don't want to hear, I can't, they all be embarrassed, and blah, 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 right? But the first three years, people are so stupid, 
that they'll go, hey, come to my church. I'll lead you to Christ right now. You know, and as we get older, we're like, well, you know, I'm, I don't really want to do that. This woman has the living water. Jesus then breaks down racial barriers and judgment. Jesus basically, after this woman goes, probably has a communication with his guys. It's like, this woman just received Christ. Why would you reject her? These Jewish men that are trying to find Jewish law and, and, and they're struggling with judgment and racial issues, Jesus has now broken the barrier. If you look at every Christian society in the country, and I say this, every time I get up here, and I don't get up here that much, there's always the same concept that I say over and over. Christianity has done more for women than anything that's ever happened. In this moment, Jesus then brings a lady and she becomes a testimony to this community. She is the living water of this community. She is this living wellspring that comes up and people are coming to this woman for advice because now she is the wellspring. She's the one that talked to the Messiah. Women have been elevated and today... Society is walking away from the things that have elevated people, right? This country, this great country is great not because we're just a bunch of rebels that uh, fought the English and hated them and now they're our number one ally. It's because we put God first. And now we're walking away from how we got there. Tonight I just want to challenge you. If you've never led someone to faith, start praying over Easter that you might be a part of that. At least listen to someone walk it through. Listen to what your church does on Sunday and what happens on Easter because we need to start preparing for a harvest. Many of us say, oh, I want to see revival and all this happen. But if you're part of revival, you got to be able to experience the, the, the leading someone in salvation. Back in the Jesus movement days, you could walk up to anybody on the streets and say, if you don't know Jesus, let me tell you about Jesus. And people would come to the Lord one out of every two were coming to the Lord on the streets at Taco Bell. Taco Bell was really cool back then, not as cool today. They would come quickly because the Spirit. And once the Spirit rises up, you need to be able to communicate and bring those people across the line. Amen? Let's just bow our heads and thank the Almighty God for what Jesus has done in our lives. Father, we love you. We ask as we move away from today and as we go into this week, teach us how to, to worship in spirit and truth. Help us understand what it means to lead someone into salvation, Father. Thank you for what you've done in our society and with our women and in our community about how you've elevated us up. Lord, let us not, let us not walk away from our roots of how we've got here, Lord. Let us be blessed in you, Lord. Let us see our ways that we've fallen away from you, Lord, and draw us back. Draw our community back, draw our households back, draw our country back, Lord, so that we can glorify you in all that we are. Father, we love you today and we praise you and we lift you up. In the name above all names, that name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Hey, thanks for letting me be a part of your life tonight. Thanks so much.